This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you in part by Wrangler. Whether you ride a bike, a bronc, or a skateboard, Wrangler jeans are for you. Classic or modern styles, a range of fits, all price points, vintage re-releases. Wrangler has something for everyone. Visit Wrangler.com and check out their selection of jeans, shirts, and outwear for men and women. New styles, great fits. Wrangler, real, comfortable jeans. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. If you grew up in America in the 1970s and 80s, a vacation with your family likely involved piling in a car with your parents and siblings and being stuck with them for eight or more hours on the open road with little other than each other. Keep yourselves entertained and sane. Entire movies during this time were made about the great American road trip, yet this world has slowly faded away without our hardly noticing thanks to cheaper airfare and advances in technology and convenience. My guest today has set out to document what he calls the golden age of road tripping before Vanishes from our collective memory. His name is Rich Rattay, and in his book, Don't Make Me Pull Over, he walks us through the history of the American family road trip. Today on the show, Rich and I discuss how it's actually bicycles that kickstarted America's interstate highway system, when automotive road tripping really started taking off, and all the iconic businesses that built up around the nation's new pastime, including Stucky's convenience stores, motels, and attractions like the world's largest frying pan. Along the way, Rich shares stories from his family road trips growing up as a kid, particularly his memories of his dad taking on the role of leader, protector, and refueling stop minimizer during in their expeditions. We end our conversation discussing the decline of the family road trip, what we miss out when we take a plane to our destination, and why millennial parents are ushering in the return of road trips to American culture. This episode is definitely a nice drive down memory lane and a great one to listen to as you hit the open road. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash don't make me pull over. All one word. And Rich joins me now via clearcast.io. All right, Rich Rattay, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brett. Thanks for having me. So you have a book of history out on an, a, you know, on a very important topic that I think gets overlooked because it's part of, I think, almost every single American's upbringing, uh, and that is the, the road trip. It's called Don't Make Me Pull Over, an informal history of the family road trip. So, I mean, what was the impetus behind this book? Were you just one day waxing nostalgic about your own road trips as a kid and decided, I'm going to look into that? What, what happened there? Well, kind of kind of like that. Uh, shockingly enough, the idea for writing a book about family vacations actually occurred to me while on a family vacation. Now, my, uh, my dirty little secret is it wasn't a road trip that time. We'd actually flown to that particular destination, but I was sitting on a beach chair and I looked over at my sons who were eight years old and six years old at that time. And uh, I got back to thinking about what life was like for me when I was their age and traveling the highways of the 1970s with my own siblings and parents. I'm the youngest uh, of four kids who grew up in uh, near Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And it occurred to me how profound those road trip experiences really were to me. And, and especially, you know, at that impressionable young age of, you know, say around eight or 10 years old, they'd given me many of my fondest childhood memories. They broadened my horizons in so many ways, you know, at that age, going to different areas of the country, trying completely different foods, hearing the different ways that people talked, even though we were still, you know, in the same country. And I also realized that those long hours of traveling together really shaped my relationships with my siblings and my parents for really a lifetime. They just, they brought us closer in so many ways. But it also occurred to me at that same time how little I knew about how this great American road trip experience really came to be. I had very little idea of how America got its, its roads and its interstate highways, how we got things like eight-track tape decks and fuzz busters, why our station wagon had fake wood paneling on the sides. And so when I got back from that trip, uh, I hit the library uh, I did about a year's worth of research, reading book after book and, and doing more research online. And I found so many interesting stories and anecdotes and just little, little historical nuggets that I knew I had the stuff to write an interesting book. And so I sat down and spent the next uh, four years writing a book. And I bet you, when you were looking at your son too, you're probably thinking, 
he has never experienced that world and he probably never will either. No, no, that's right. Uh, even though we still take many road trips and I've always traveled, my wife and I have always taken our kids on road trips from, from a very young age. But just the landscape has changed in, in so many ways, of course, with the rise of our personal electronic devices and the fact that there's so many more exits with restaurants and service stations, you know, along the interstates these days. It's just not the same. It can never be. Right. Well, so let's get into it. Because I mean, it's interesting that you know, uh, you know, you don't think about a history of road trips, but certain things had to have happened for the idea of a road trip to have occurred. And like the first one is, okay, of course, cars had to be invented. But the other important aspect of that is like cars had to have something to drive over to do a road trip. So like, when did Americans start thinking of, hey, let's build roads that not only go within a town or maybe within a state, but go across state lines. So really, it wasn't the automobile at all that inspired America to start building better roads. It was the bicycle and specifically the invention of what's called the safety bicycle. Until the invention of the safety bicycle, we had basically those penny farthings, those high wheeled bicycles with the, the pedals fixed to a large, you know, a very tall wheel. And they were very dangerous bicycles because if you fell off the perch of those high wheeled bicycles, you were liable to, of course, you know, break an arm, break a collarbone. So really they were strictly the, um, uh, kind of the domain of daring young men who used to ride those, those types of bicycles. With the invention of the safety bicycle, all of a sudden the, the pedals came down and, and were situated between two equal sized wheels powered by a chain or a treadle. And really the safety bicycle kind of democratized bicycles. It made it safe and easy to use for women, for older folks, and especially kids. And so that inspired a real bicycling boom into the late 1890s and, and, and that era. Many of these bicyclists formed bicycling clubs, which petitioned lawmakers to start building better roads so that they could ride these bikes farther out from their cities and, and you know, enjoy the riding of their bicycles more. This became known as the Good Roads Movement. And then, of course, you know, automobiles started coming along in the 1890s as well. They gradually overtook bicycles in popularity. It was the latest new thrill machine, especially for, for some of those daring young male drivers. And so automobile clubs started overtaking bicycling clubs, clubs in popularity, and they kind of assumed the mast uh, of wanting to, uh, you know, help create these these better roads in America. So like the first road or highway made for cars, when did that happen? Well, I mean, the first major transcontinental highway was the Lincoln Highway, which was the brainchild of a, an entrepreneur and self-made millionaire named Carl Fisher. Um, he had made his money as the head of Presto Light Headlamps, which were the first gas-compressed headlamps used on automobiles. And of course, he wanted to promote automobile usage and wanted to get more people interested in buying automobiles in order to support his products. So he came up with the idea of building this transcontinental highway, which he envisioned going from Times Square in New York City all the way to San Francisco. And so he called together a, a number of his friends in the auto industry. He was very well connected. Uh, and gathered them for a big dinner party and announced this, this big idea to build a transcontinental highway. He got many of them to contribute money from their companies and out of their own pockets. Among the early contributors to the Lincoln Highway Project were Thomas Edison, Woodrow Wilson, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, president of Goodyear, Frank Sieberling. But still, the funds weren't, weren't nearly enough so he had to eventually come up with another idea as well. That idea was called seedling miles. And basically, he used some of the, the donations that were privately contributed to build improved sections of this highway. And then travelers would be able, motorists would be able to travel over these improved sections and compare them side by side with, you know, the unimproved sections, the dirt roads and see how much better they were. And then this inspired demand by those motorists to enlist their own local leaders 
to engage in efforts to improve those sections as well, and then connect these seedling miles together into one unified whole. So construction of the Lincoln Highway began in 1913. It was hoped that it would be completed in time for the 1915 World's Fair in San Francisco. It didn't quite turn out that way. Portions of the Lincoln Highway remained unimproved until well into the late 1920s. Of course, there was a very famous crossing of the Lincoln Highway by the 1919 Motor Transport Convoy, of which a young lieutenant by the name of Dwight D. Eisenhower was a member. This was a huge U.S. Army military expedition, included 81 vehicles attempting to cross the Lincoln Highway. They actually started in Washington, D.C. and connected with the, uh, the Lincoln Highway at Gettysburg. And they just had a, they had a devil of a time. It took them well into the well into the weeks to to cross the Lincoln Highway. They had to use a part tractor, part truck called a Militor to constantly extricate vehicles that were stuck in the mud. They often had to get off the Lincoln Highway entirely and cut through farmers' fields because they found the going easier. There was a a 1916 road guide created by the Lincoln Highway Association that described any attempt to cross the Lincoln Highway, even at that time, as something of a sporting proposition. And as a final note uh, of advice to anyone attempting to do so, it encouraged them to not wear new shoes. (laughs) So, I mean, at this time, so it was rough going. And like this was people who attempted it, they weren't they weren't taking the Lincoln Highway to, you know, go visit some roadside, you know, some attraction or visit grandma or grandpa. These were people who were like basically daredevils. They wanted to see if they could drive a car all the way across. I mean, officially like road tripping in America didn't start with the, the Lincoln Highway. Like when did like just say average Americans, families decided, okay, we're going to take to the road to go visit grandma or grandpa in another state, or we're going to go to a national park. Like, when did that start happening? Was it like not till the 30s or 40s? Uh, It was actually really in the 1920s. And that was when there was a craze called auto camping. And really what made auto camping possible was Henry Ford and his mass production, which really brought the price of cars down and within reach of, of average, you know, middle class Americans. And really all auto camping was, was trespassing with a car. You would be traveling along a back road. And when night fell, you would simply pull over at the side of the road where there was a nice clearing or just a farmer's field. And you would pull a tent out of the back of your truck or just sleep in the car. Of course, this wore out its welcome with property owners uh, along those roadways pretty quickly. People, you know, squatting on their property at night and squatting in their bushes in the morning. So municipalities began to set up their own campsites where where these travelers could set up a camp and stay the night. Other entrepreneurs saw how popular that these municipal campsites were becoming. So they set up what were called cabin camps, which were just, you know, little campsites with huts and very spare amenities, a, a stove, you know, a heater in there, maybe a mattress where some of these travelers could stay the night. Gradually, these cabin camps kind of evolved into more formal buildings, motor courts, and eventually then uh, into the early motels. We get the motel. I imagine the the development of Route 66 sort of brought driving even further into the mainstream. Yeah, Route 66 was built predominantly during the the, the 1930s, and and in large part, as many of our highways were during the 1930s, it was built as a as a uh, work program under the Franklin Delano Roosevelt administration. Of course, it was kind of a jobs program to get and keep people working during the Great Depression. So, and then along this, they started building. And the, the, the thing that we got to point out too is that okay, the roads were there. But there was like no infrastructure, like except for a few maybe uh, municipal camps, maybe a few motels. But like unlike today, where there's you know a roads an exit every ten miles, they didn't have that. Like what what they do for gas? What they do for like? Did you have to like prepare and like really plot out and be 
I don't know, strategic about planning a road trip back in the day? Oh, absolutely. Uh, You would commonly have uh, gas cans with you that would have spare gas. Of course, the only place that you could really find gas was in towns and, and at general stores or farm supply stores that would commonly have gas, of course, for farmers and their and their tractors. But it was uh, very unpredictable where you might be able to find a, a diner to stop at to eat, where you would find a place to stay. So, uh, you know, you had to be much more self-reliant and prepared to deal with the unpredictable anytime you traveled certainly in in any of the days prior to the interstates. Right. And the, the development of the interstates, that happened uh, after World War II. So I guess there was like a lull in driving because there was rationing going on during uh, World War II. And then after the war, big boom in car production, like we took all this, you know, this arsenal of democracy we built up and just unleashed it on consumer products, tons of cars rolling off the conveyor belts. And then also, of course, we have the interstate system that was developed during the 1950s and 1960s. And I thought it was interesting, like we often think of, you know, interstates being associated with the, the era of Eisenhower. And that's where it got its genesis, but it really, it didn't get finished until the 1980s, which I found really surprising. Yeah, uh, amazingly, the interstates, of course, were begun in 1956. Originally, it was uh, thought that they would cost about $30 billion and take 10 years to build. (laughs) (laughs) I love the optimism. It goes without saying that those projections were slightly off. I think in the end, it took about $130 billion to build uh, the interstates. And of course, construction of the interstates did, as you mentioned, last into the 1980s. It turned out to be the most expensive peacetime project in history. Yeah. And they're still working on it, right? <laughs> right? Uh, I mean, even today, I think I-35 has been, had construction going on. That's from like, you know, goes through Texas and Oklahoma. That's been, right. I well, since I mean, like from 14. the time they were first built, the interstates were really on, only constructed to last about 20 to 30 years. So really, we've been uh, rebuilding the highways even before they were were completed, you know, in the 1980s. So it has been a uh, one long road project, I guess. Right. So uh, the interstate system, that really, that kicked off, I think, the road tripping boom because you had lots of Americans driving cars, uh, lots of Americans with vacation time, with disposable income. And we've got this big, shiny interstate system that can take you from, you know, one end of the country, either north or south or east to west. Yeah, and and the interstates really, I mean, they fundamentally changed America, right? Because they were a highway system that was built, you know, exclusively for high-speed travel. They, uh, for the first time, you had super highways that eliminated intersections via overpasses and underpasses. Of course, most of them were were built to be four lane with broad shoulders. They were restricted spaces, so you weren't liable to get stuck behind a, a, a tractor or a, a wagon being pulled by a a horse or anything like that. And they re- greatly reduced the travel times that it took to cross the country. So they made America a much smaller place. For the first time, all these destinations that people could, uh, or that people once could only read about in newspapers and magazines, now they could suddenly travel to given uh, ownership of a car, uh, a few days off, and a few dollars for gasoline. And, and an entire family could travel almost as cheaply as as one person. So it made America a much smaller place. So we got the highway systems and more people were taking to the roads. But even during this time, uh, there weren't the like rest, there weren't like the gas stations or the, you know, the, you know, sort of mega corporate chain gas stations that we have today that are just there, like we said, every 10, 10 miles, 20 miles. When you planned a road trip back in the 60s and in the 70s, like you had to think about, okay, um, I got to, I'm going to start here at seven, you know, at this, this time I've got, I know I got this much gas. I can make it to, you know, this destination. So like, when, tell us, walk us through like the development of the infrastructure. Like what did planners think about and when they were developing the highways to ensure, you know, travelers weren't stranded on the freeway by themselves in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, well, I, first of all, one of the, the big things that they planned to be as part of the interstates were what were called the safety rest areas, you know, or what we just simply call today rest areas. Of course, the purpose of these rest areas was to give motorists a place to pull over without leaving the restricted space of the highway. It was a place for them to be able to fix their cars in the event of mechanical breakdown 
breakdowns. It was also to offer families a place to, you know, pull off the road and have a picnic and take a break from the, the hardships of driving. Of course, all the rest areas offer, uh, offered restrooms, you know, for, for, for families to use for that purpose. And there was also a, a kiosk where families or especially the driver's dads could go look for directions so that they, they knew, you know, how, how to proceed along the inter- interstates. Gradually, over time, the rest areas also became, they kind of developed a role in public relations as well, because one of the things that the interstates did, of course, I mean, prior to the interstates, you traveled on two-lane highways, which took you through every town and city along the way. You got kind of a, a, a taste for different areas of the country. You traveled relatively slowly through these areas, so you got to see the uh, the cities around you. You got to see the products that they made. You got to see the food they served. You got a taste of the local culture. And what interstates did is they really avoided taking motorists into those small towns. And they really kind of isolated motorists from the countryside around them. So what local communities began to do uh, in order to give motorists a taste of their local culture is they started turning these rest areas into uh, almost public ambassadors and they would they would set up plaques in these areas to tell those who stopped at the rest areas about historic events that had taken place in the area or they would create elaborate murals out of tiles inside the buildings that described some of these events or or gave people an idea of the the products that were manu- manufactured in that particular area so they really began to to fill a vital role in public relations for many of these small communities. And of course, it was also, they also, that was also reflected in the design of many of these rest area buildings as well. They used locally sourced materials, uh, timber and brick and stone that were specific to that area of the country. Some of these buildings were built in the shape of teepees or oil guernseys, things of, of that nature that reflected the, the local uh, industry. So these rest areas really took on kind of a role in public relations for, for many of these communities. Many of those, those classic rest areas are now starting to disappear. There's just not the need for them anymore as our, our cars have gotten more reliable. Uh, you know, we don't have to stop and, and uh, have rest areas to fix our cars anymore. We don't need to stop and look for directions because we have those on our, on our GPS systems or on our smartphones. And of course, there's, there's many more restaurants and exits with restaurants and service stations for us to get off and use the restrooms. And we don't need to, to use rest areas for that purpose anymore. So unfortunately, many of the, those classic great rest areas are starting to disappear from our landscape. Yeah, I was noticing that. I uh, took a trip to New Mexico this like a couple weeks ago, and I noticed some of the rest stops that I'd stopped at as a kid they were closed up and like they started, they were taking down the structures that were there. And I was like, man, that's, that's a, it's, a, it's an end of an era there. And I mean, and to your point about the food things, I remember we stopped at those not only to go pee and just play around, but like, I remember my folks, we, part of getting ready for a big road trip is we'd pack a cooler full of food, maybe some, you know, sandwich meat, some bread, and we'd stop and we'd have a picnic at one of these things. But you know, nowadays you can just stop at a, a loves or whatever and get, you know, a Southwest egg roll and uh, be on your way in, in 10 minutes. Yeah. Those exits are simply much more frequent now and, you know, places to stop and, and eat are, are much easier to find in the 1970s. And, and especially, you know, of course, before then, Go, setting off on a family road trip was much more like uh, uh, setting off on an, on an expedition into the wild frontier. You didn't know when you were going to find those exits with the service stations, and you couldn't always count on restaurants, and you couldn't count on finding gas stations as frequently. So you you did have to be prepared and take things like picnic lunches with you. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. All right, we've talked about it on the podcast and also on the website. Every man should have at least one suit in their wardrobe because you're going to wear this to job interviews, weddings, funerals, or any event where a suit is required. Now, you can buy off the rack 
and you know you can get it's good suit but it's not going to fit you just right even if you tailor because there's certain parts of an off-the-rack suit you can't tailor it if you want a suit that fits you just perfectly like a glove you got to go made to measure now you're probably thinking brett made to measure is going to cost me an arm and a leg not so with indochino and indochino.com you can get a made to measure suit and customize it however you want and pay about the same price as you would for an off-the-rack suit at a department store here's how it works you go to indochino.com you customize your suit however you want you want you pick the fabric color the type of fabric how your jacket looks how the lapels look on your jacket how the pockets look pants pleats no pleats cuff no cuff customize it however you want and then you follow their easy to follow video measuring guide you measure yourself might need someone to help you out with some of the parts you send them in and in a few weeks you got a made to measure suit sent directly to your door it's fantastic i did this got a navy blue suit looks great fits great i love it if you want to try this out got a special offer for my podcast listeners go to indochino.com and when you enter code manliness at checkout you can get any premium indochino suit for just 379 dollars that's over 50 percent off the regular price for a premium made to measure suit plus shipping is free again that's indochino.com promo code manliness to get any premium suit for just 379 dollars plus free shipping also by casper casper is a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time with three mattress models the original casper the wave and the essential casper mattresses are perfectly designed to soothe and cradle your natural geometry not to mention the breathable design helps you sleep cool and regulate your body temperature throughout the night and it's delivered right to your door in a small how do they do that size box with free shipping returns in the u.s and canada but the best part is that you can be sure of your purchase with casper's 100 night risk-free sleep on it trial yes you can send it bring it to your home sleep on it for 100 nights if you don't like it you can return it after all you spend one third of your life sleeping so you should be comfortable our producer jeremy has a casper mattress and him and his wife both report sleeping longer deeper less fitfully they don't even notice each other tossing and turning in the night like they used to now if you'd like a discount on this got an offer for you you can get 50 dollars towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com manliness and use code manliness at checkout again 50 dollars toward select mattresses by visiting casper.com manliness and using code manliness terms and conditions apply and now back to the show so one of the businesses that um, started because of more americans taking road trips thanks to the interstate highway system one that i w- i'm familiar with because i saw them all the time on road trips I took as a kid is Stuckies. Tell us about the the precipitous rise of Stuckies and their their tragic fall. Yes, well, Stuckies uh, was started by a, a gentleman by the name of Williamson Bill Stuckey in the 1930s. He was a pecan farmer, and he found himself with a bumper crop of pecans one year. So he figured, okay, I'm going to go out to the highway and just set up a roadside stand and sell some of these extra pecans that I have here to all these motorists that I see passing by the highway in front of me. And he uh, attracted quite a few motorists. They loved picking up his pecans. Pretty soon, he sent his wife into the kitchen to make some desserts with these pecans so that people you know, would have more of a reason to stop. And, and so she came up with the, all these uh, pecan desserts with pecan pies and pecan divinities and whatnot. And it became a very popular stand. So soon he added on uh, a restaurant, you know, aspect to it and a souvenir shop as well. His Stuckies grew in popularity and he had a, a very distinctive strategy for placing or locating each one of his new Stuckies that he added onto his chain. He started out in Atlanta, which was the biggest city near where his farm was. And he had essentially a big gulp drink and he would sip on this drink and drive out along the interstate. And when he felt nature's urge, he would pull off to the side of the road and get out his road map and, and make a little mark on his map where, you know, he had to, uh, r- respond to that urge. And then he would get back to driving, drive further down the road until he felt, you know, when he needed to go again and he'd make another X there. And those would become the locations for each one of his stuckies because he felt, you know, other drivers would, would, uh, be having that same experience. And I guess that explains why stuckies always had very clean restrooms too. <laughs> now, the thing with Stuckies is they would always have multiple, multiple billboards, up to 50 billboards for each Stuckies location. Bill Stuckey was a, a, you know, a big believer in putting out these billboards to promote uh, his, his locations and, and get people to stop. And that worked uh, well and good until Stuckies started going out of business in mass in the late 1970s. 
mainly because of the rise of the real fast food restaurants like McDonald's and Wendy's and their convenient drive through service. Pretty soon, you know, motorists wanted to just stop and, or and barely even stop. They wanted to drive through and pick up their meals and keep going rather than go inside to Stuckey's and have a, a, a sit down meal at a Stuckey's. So Stuckey's started going out of business, uh, in mass, but those billboards remained. And that used to get my family into real problems because we would be cruising along and, and my dad was one of those dads that was a big believer in making time. He wanted to get to whatever that day's destination was in whatever, you know, time, whatever time was humanly possible, you know? So if that meant, you know, not stopping for meals, that was okay with him. If it meant ignoring our pleas to, to get over and use the restroom, that was okay with him. But he would also stretch every tank full of gas to the bitter limit. And we would see these Stucky, Stucky's billboards saying, hey, great food, get gas, next Stucky's, you know, 15 miles. So we would be kind of running on fumes as we're trying to leg it out to the next Stucky's, following these billboards one after the other. Yep, you know, get gas at Stucky's. And we would follow the billboard to the Stucky's location. Of course, we'd find that they had gone out of business. And then, of course, we were, uh, we were in a bit of a situation at that point with a, with an empty tank and, and, you know, unable to get any gas at, at, at a closed Stucky's. Did you guys run out of gas frequently on your family road trips? You know, uh, we, in the end, we did not. My dad, his thing was he, uh, believed in his heart of hearts that automobile engineers, calibrated fuel gauges so that when the low fuel light came on or the needle uh, went to E, that there was still 40 miles worth of gas left in the tank. And this was a theory that he put to the test many, many times. And his favorite gambit was the, the small town up ahead with extra bonus. So, you know, the, the low fuel light would come on and my mom would, you know, kind of be urging him, uh, hey, Chuck, you know, it's time to get off the interstate now. Let's let's get some gas. And you say, oh, uh, you know, I think I know of another town down the road here, you know, Dyersville or Bumbleburg or whatever, you know, kind of desperate sounding small town name that that he could come up with. And we would pass the exit, you know, with the, the clearly marked signs to a nice Sinclair gas station where we could have filled up and we'd continue on to try and get to Dyersville or Bumbleburg. And of course, pretty soon we'd pass a sign listing the town that he had referenced and it would say, you know, it's 35 miles away. So we had many anxious moments where we were like a tennis crowd, you know, uh, shifting our, our heads from the gas gauge to the road of head to the gas gauge, to the road ahead, looking for some sign of civilization down the interstate that there was a gas station coming up. And more often than not, we actually made it to that small town and and our salvation until uh, a rainy, dark night in Arkansas, and I believe 1975 or 1976, when uh, our car suddenly uh, started sputtering and we lost uh, the power steering and and sure enough we were out of gas and so my dad you know pulled over to the side of the road and wound up having to hitchhike to the next exit and forever after that he would have to listen to my mom when she said it was time to get gas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I uh, I think on my one family road trip we ran out of gas once. I remember my dad had to hitchhike into town and get a can of gas. I mean that was kind of interesting. You know, throughout the you know besides giving the formal history of of road trips in America, you you wove in vignettes from your own family history of road trips, and I, I thought it was interesting because I saw this in my own family. The dynamics, like the role of dad in road trip, he's sort of like this. He, he was like a captain of an, of an expedition, right? Because like I remember being out there when we ran out of gas, it was like there's no cell phones, there's no payphone nearby, and like it was like mom and dad having to take care of three kids in the middle of nowhere. And I, don't know, I, I can imagine like now as being a parent, like how like kind of, you know, frightening that would be you're in the middle of nowhere and you, you, you what do you do in that situation? Yeah. As you pointed out, I mean, my dad was very much captain of, of the ship and, you know, it, we, we, we drove these big land yachts. So I guess it was appropriate to call him the, the captain, but my dad did 90% of the driving. As I mentioned, his thing was, was making time. He wanted to get to whatever that destination 
for the day was as, as fast as possible. I know other fathers, you know, enjoyed stopping at every historic landmark along the way and stopping at all the great roadside attractions along the way. My dad was not that type. He just wanted to, to get to whatever destination that he set for us for that day as quickly as possible. Of course, once we got to the motels, he was the ultimate price negotiator, I guess. You know, he would always uh, give them some sob story about, you know, how times were tough for middle class families out traveling in the 1970s and those tough economic times and try to to haggle them down to get the their their best price that they were would be willing to give him. Or he got them to throw in roll away beds for my sister and I at no extra charge. So, yeah, he was very much kind of the uh, engine of our family road trips where my mom was much more the steering wheel, kind of trying to keep us guided in the right direction and kind of look out for the concerns of us kids as well. So you mentioned your dad not stopping at roadside attractions. My dad was one of those make time guys. And I'm always like, even then I was like, what are we making time? Like we're going to get there and we're not going to do anything for, I mean, it's like, why, why, (laughs) what's the rush? But anyways, every now and then he would throw us a bone and we would stop at some crazy roadside attraction because I saw the billboard for something. Like the one that I was pretty excited about was uh, the hole in the wall, which is someplace in Utah. Some guy built his house inside of like a a mountain. And it was pretty cool because the bathtub was like carved into stone. It was really neat. But like you, you talk about, this is another part of like the road trip economy that built up as more and more Americans started taking to the roads, like these crazy roadside attractions. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, uh, you know, many private entrepreneurs saw this road travel boom going on, saw all these motorists hitting the highways. So they came up with their their own attractions to try and entice people to, to get to stop over and, and spend some money. Among the most notable early ones were the Mystery Spot in Santa Cruz, California. That was a place where, you know, supposedly the laws of physics meant nothing. And you were led out to this to this cabin on a uh, on a hillside and the ball bearings uh, appeared to roll uphill and people would have to stand at all these odd angles and it looked like they should be falling over but they were able to you know to somehow maintain their balance and stand up and of course all the guy had done was build a cockeyed cabin onto the side of a, a of a hillside and there was no visible horizon for people to be able to reference. So it was all an optical illusion, but it gained a lot of notoriety. It was featured in Life magazine and in several television shows, and it became world famous. Another famous one was The Thing in Texas Canyon, Arizona, where there were all these billboards for hundreds of miles leading into this not even a small town. It was just a you know a roadside stop in Texas Canyon, Arizona. But these billboards would ask, you know, what is the thing, or come see the amazing thing. And you know, I, I won't give away what, no, what you, the thing no. actually was, but it was. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, you know, obviously, uh, you know, they were successful in getting a lot of families to stop there. Down in the south, of course, they had many alligator farms uh, trying to get you to, you know, stop off and and look at at dozens of alligators and large pythons and whatnot that were kept in these roadside farms. You also had all of these world's largest statues here in Wisconsin. We had the world's largest muskie. There were multiple world's largest frying pans. I think at one point there were six contenders for that. There was a bunch of world's largest chairs, you know, world's largest office chair, rocking chair right down the line. There was even a, a world's largest bull weevil statue in Enterprise, Louisiana. And of course, I think many of us have heard of the largest balls of twine, right? And for years, for actually decades, there were two competitors for that title, one in Darwin, Minnesota, and another in Cocker City, Kansas. And they competed back and forth for for decades for the true title holder of the world's largest ball of twine. Uh, Personally, one of my favorites is the one that I discovered on a road trip with my family just a few years ago when we made that classic American excursion out to Mount Rushmore. And we stopped off at the Minuteman Missile Historic Site in South Dakota, where you can still see decommissioned Minuteman missiles in their silos, just like they were during the Cold War of the 1970s and 80s. And I thought it was just a a fantastic 
museum out there. It's actually at the same exit that you get off of I-90 to to go visit the Badlands out there. But that became one of my all-time favorite roadside stops, I guess. Another aspect of road tripping that's changed, that it's no longer the case, is is entertainment. Now people have iPads, iPhones, whatever, games, you know, Nintendo Switches. But back in the day when you were a kid on a road trip, you had to really think about how you're going to entertain yourself for possibly eight hours, nine hours in the car. So, I mean, what, tell us about the sort of the brief history of uh, road trip entertainment that you uncovered. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously back then it was much more of an inter- interactive experience, right? You were a family traveling together and you had no one but each other in order to pass the time with. And so many families would play those great family road travel games like license plate bingo and out the alphabet game and 20 questions. One of my family's favorite activities was to play Mad Libs, which are, you know, they're still around to this day, but my mom would also keep something uh, at her feet, which we affectionately came to call the, the game bag. And that was filled with all sorts of games and activities like those plastic mazes where you'd have to navigate a small ball bearing, you know, through a maze to get it to an end point. Or there'd be the the magic slate writing pad where you used a, a plastic stylus to write on a gray sheet of plastic. And then you could lift up that sheet and it would erase whatever you'd drawn so that you could make a new drawing over it. Or there was Wooly Willy, which was a, a, a cartoon character beneath a, a plastic bubble. And you used a, a magnet to guide black metal shavings over Wooly Willy's face in order to create mustaches and beards. Or I'd always create an afro on top of Wooly Willy. We'd have those yes and no invisible ink games where you'd have these invisible ink pens to play games of hangman or reveal mines, you know, in a, in a minefield as you, you tried to navigate your ship safely through this minefield. And one of my favorite activities was one of the first handheld electronic games. That was Mattel Electronic Football, which became a, an enormously popular game. It was really, you know, it was, like I said, the first of the handheld electronic games and today, if you look at it, I mean, it's an absolutely primitive device. The game screen was about the size uh, of a stick of gum. You were a running back that was represented by a bright red dash. And I think you had one other blocker that was a red dash in front of you. And you would try to elude tacklers as you made your way towards the end zone. These tacklers were simply slightly dimmer red dashes. So the only thing to distinguish the offensive player and the defensive player was how bright the dash was. Well, you you try and you know elude these tacklers and get to the end zone. And as primitive as it was, it was incredibly fun, incredibly addictive. In fact, it was named one of Time Magazine's all-time 100 devices. And so I spent many hours passing time just doing that. But you know, most of these activities that you played in the car were very much shared experiences. And, and that was really the thing about road travel is, you know, you had to deal with your fellow family members for those long hours on the road. You could have fun with them. You could fight with them. And Lord knows we had plenty of fights in my family. But in the end, all that interaction and all those experiences, all those discoveries that you made together, all the challenges and adversity that you faced out on the highways together, those brought you closer together as a family. Right. Yeah. Passing gas. That was... <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Whoever smelt it dealt. Whoever right? smelt it dealt. Right. No. Yeah. The uh, the invisible ink thing that brought back some memories because I remember buying those at Stuckey's along with some sort of. They always sold like in New Mexico. It was always like some sort of like you know chintzy Native American you know fake Native American stuff like Indian right. drums that I thought were pretty cool. But those, I knew it. Those dream catchers and yeah, little, dream uh, catchers and drums that you would bang on with the you know, with the little sticks. Right. Yeah. And, your dad would go crazy and tell you to stop it or he's going to turn around. So it was family. It was very interactive at the time. You'd have to talk and interact with your siblings. You would get in fights sometimes and then your mom and would turn around and like put some sort of barrier between you. So you wouldn't like mess with each other. Yeah. Um, you or, know, or you or you take some tape to draw the line between you know siblings when one was touching the other too much or somebody had their foot uh, you know too far on the other guy's side, and 
you know, especially for me, uh, you know, I was in the back seat with two much older teenage brothers. So I finally gave up trying to fight for my space on the back seat entirely. And I'd either retreat to the floorboard where I'd have to deal with that big, you know, transmission housing, the big hump, right on the floor. Right, right. It always made it impossible to get into a comfortable position to sleep. Or my favorite position would be up on the rear window shelf. Uh, you know, where I could spread out underneath the, the the slanted rear window and just kind of enjoy the sunshine coming in, of course, through the, the antenna that was built right into the glass. Yeah, that wouldn't fly today. You would be, <laughs> your parents would be ticketed. No, yeah, the times have definitely changed. But back then, I mean, I can vividly remember being up on that rear window shelf uh, and there'd be a high, highway patrol officer pulling up alongside of us and I'd wave over it at him and, you know, he'd just tip his hat in return. Either <laughs> that or I'd be in the back and the rear facing, you know, pop up seat of our Ford Country Squire station wagon that I think was mandatory that every family own at least, at, you know, at some point during the 1970s. And I'd be back there and I'd have my own little private fort kind of set up, you know, and I'd have my stash of candy with my candy cigarettes. And you should have seen some of the looks that I would get from people passing us by on the highway as they're looking over at this eight or 10 year old kid with a, you know, what looked to be a lucky strike stick sticking out of his mouth when it was just my, you know, my little candy cigarette back there. So in, the, in your book, you make the case that the, the sort of the, the golden age of the road trip of the great American road trip uh, was the 1970s. And then after that, it, it started fading. What, what changed? Well, it was really deregulation of the airlines uh, in 1978 under the Carter administration that was really the beginning of the end of the golden era of, of family road trips. Until then, air travel had just been prohibitively expensive, especially for families with lots of kids. Airfares were three to eight times the price that we would pay today. And so once the airlines were deregulated, it created a much more competitive environment between the national carriers. You saw airfares come way down in price. And pretty soon families started parking their cars and, and wanted to take advantage of the, the convenience and, of course, the, the quick way to get to their family vacation destinations by getting on airplanes. Within 10 years of deregulation of the airlines, the number of flyers in America doubled. Today, it's triple what it was in the, in the 1970s before deregulation. And, you know, of course, uh, you know, soon after deregulation, there were just there were far more flights to far more destinations and families wanted to take advantage of that. And that really spelled the the end of the, the golden era of the family road trip. But what do you think we're missing out by taking the plane instead of the car to get to wherever we're going for vacation? Well, uh, I mean, I think we've we've kind of lost the idea that the journey is in a way its own destination. Right. We've kind of lost some of that. Uh, great opportunity that we once had to spend time together as families to interact with each other, to share discoveries, you know, even at, by stopping off at roadside attractions uh, or discovering great scenery or historic landmarks along the way that we may not have anticipated. And even some of those occasions of overcoming adversity together. Because if you suffered a mechanical breakdown uh, on the highways of the 1970s, I mean, families were were kind of on their own, right? I mean, help wasn't just a, a simple phone call on a cell phone away. You either had to find a way to repair the car yourself or to hitch a ride to the next exit or find help in some way. And so I think there was definitely a feeling back then that that, that families were were in it together and all of those things, I think, kind of brought us closer. When we started getting on, on airplanes, we kind of eliminated, eliminated that, that journey. It all became about instant gratification and getting to that final destination as quickly as possible. So, you know, I, I lament the idea that we've kind of left the, the journey behind. Do you still, do you try to take road trips or are you, is your family an airplane family? No, absolutely. We still take road trips. We may not take the, the, the lengthy trips that we took when I was growing up. I think we've stayed a, a little bit closer to home for the most part, but I live in the Milwaukee area. We'll make long weekend trips, maybe four or five days to go to St. Louis. One of our favorite recent discoveries has been the Henry Ford Museum in Detroit. And so we've gone there multiple times, but I've also made up for some lost time. Now, when I was growing up, my dad was an avid golfer, so the point of many of our family road trips 
was to get my father out of the Wisconsin winter and down to a, a warm, sunny golf course in the South as fast as humanly possible. So we would particularly travel uh, during the, the winter months over Christmas break and spring break. And we would travel to the destinations predominantly along the Gulf Coast, maybe in the New Orleans area, the Florida Panhandle, but almost always east of the Mississippi River. So when my wife and, and kids and I do take road trips these days, it's predominantly to the west. We've been out to Yellowstone Park, to Mount Rushmore, and we've just had some fantastic road trip experiences. So I think it is possible to to keep those th- those road trips alive. And, and we do very much make those road trips shared experiences and spend lots of quality time talking to each other and dealing with each other and, and you know, just recreating the, those magical experiences that I so fondly remember from when I traveled the, the highways of the 1970s with my own parents and siblings. And one, one thing I've noticed, I actually enjoy, I, there was a time like I, I preferred flying, but I, since I guess 9-11 and sort of the, mm-hmm. the uptick in security and it's just like driving is just, it feels so nice. I feel like I'm in charge. Right. right when you when you go to the airport, as soon as you enter, enter the airport, like you feel like I am no longer I no longer have any autonomy. I'm just gonna do whatever I have to do to get on this plane. But like when you get in the car, like no one knows where you're at. You can pull off at a you know a convenience store and take your time, get out, wander around, get back in. Like there's no, and it just it feels so good. I don't know something about the freedom of the open road. It, it feels amazing. And there is significant evidence that millennials and especially young millennial parents are coming back to road trips in vast numbers. I saw a recent study that said in 2016 that 39% of all family vacations were taken by road trip, and that was up 16% over just the previous year. I think it's a sign um, millennials in particular and and, uh, people as a whole are getting fed up with air travel. Obviously, airfares have gone up in price. There's many more unexpected delays and cancellations. You're shoehorned into these, you know, impossibly small seats. You can't bring your own drinks with you into the airport. Uh, So I think people are becoming disenchanted with air travel and they're looking for alternatives and they're turning back to road travel for the for the specific reasons that you mentioned that you can leave when you can when you want you can stop when and where you want and for how long you want so it you know it's my hope that as people are rediscovering the practical benefits of road travel we're also coming back to the idea of the road trip as a shared experience that can bring us all closer and uh, can really be the source for creating uh, many wonderful memories together as a family. Well, Rich, is there someplace people can go to learn more about the book? Uh, yeah, absolutely. You can pick up the book at uh, on Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble. Uh, of course, it's always a great idea that we get out and support those independent booksellers. You can come and visit me on my website at richardretayrights.com. Or we also have lots of interesting posts and discussions going on over at my Facebook page, which is Richard Retay, King of the Road Trip. Well, Rich Rattay, thanks so much. This has been really interesting. A lot of fun too. Thank you so much for having me on, Brad. I had fun. I hope your listeners did too. My guest today was Rich Rattay. He's the author of the book, Don't Make Me Pull Over. It's available on amazon.com. Pick it up. It's a great vacation read. And if you want to find out more information about the book, check out our show notes at aom.is slash don't make me pull over. We can find links to resources. We can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the show, you've gotten something out of it, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for your continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. <laughs>